Untitled Beatles Podcast. Well, good morning, TJ. How are you? Good morning, Tony. How are you? <laughs> I'm good morning in morning. It's show tune morning on the Untitled Beatles Podcast. The Untitled Beatles Podcast. <laughs> Everything's plural today. It's called pluralism. Everything's coming up plurals, man. Deal with it. <laughs> plurals up. <laughs> Which, you know, what's amazing is the album we're going to talk about today was actually booted off number one by two Broadway cast recordings. Is that right? In 64. So there is a Broadway tie-in to this. And of course, we are talking about the Beatles' second album. This is an American recording. American recording! <laughs> Stay away from me! Hey, hey, Barton Cummings, maybe a different lyric? Try woman. I don't like women. What? Breaking news. Guess who, singer, doesn't like women? One of them stutters. Baby! That's back when Turner Overdrive. Yeah, that's I'm mixing, BTO. I'm mixing my classic rock up. I'm a terrible WCKG listener from the late 80s. <laughs> kind of know your Canadian rock, though. You're Neil Young, you're Rush. Uh, Ryan Adams, Ryan Adams, Clatu, <laughs> Oletta Adams, who I think sang the soul parts on Tears for Fears records. Yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. man. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I, I misspoke. It's not an American recording. It's an American album. They recorded it in England. Unless you want to count whatever Dave Dexter did as a recording. Uh, Drenching it somewhere in Hollywood <laughs> in, a, in a, a, a vacuum room. Yes. I don't know what a vacuum room is. It's like a panic room if you're panicked about vacuuming. Yeah. I guess is what a vacuum room is. But yeah, I mean, this, this album is the definitive Dave Dexter experience. And what we're going to get into, both for better and for worse, because this may be, I'm partial. The American Rubber Soul is my favorite American album. But this is probably number two. It's my Beatles second album in the American discography. Because as we're going to talk about, there's no other Beatles record that rocks this hard. And the balance is weird with who's singing what. It's over and under a half hour. This, yeah. it, It's just this weird rush of a record that, like we talked about in our Meet the Beatles podcast, I think the last one we did, it is so weird and unique and American and kind of got forgotten about. Same story as Meet the Beatles. Yeah. But the music on this record is... The decisions made to compile Meet the Beatles resulted in an even better second album. That's pretty cool. So I owe a bit of a mea culpa on this. This is one of those records I never did buy when I was a, a teenager, when you could still buy the American records in record stores and stuff like that. And it was because, yeah, it's a lot of covers. Because on Meet the Beatles, there's just the one Till There Was You cover that was to promote another Capitol recording. <laughs> <laughs> Show tune alert. And and because Paul loved it. The the standard from the uh, Meredith Wilson musical, The Music Man. Right. Uh, so this album was mostly covers. And yeah, I've I've expressed I wouldn't call it disdain. It's just uh, it's just out of <laughs> abject hatred. I think what you're looking for. <laughs> no, man. No, no. Just out of the Beatles canon. I prefer their originals just as a listener. I just prefer their originals. So when I see an album, that's all the covers. I'm like, ah, you know, I, I don't really give it a chance. You know, I kind of judged it by its cover. And also the originals on here are, if you recall from our Beatle bottoms list, I think two of them fall on this record. So that was also a reason why. And I think those same two fall on the top of my Beatles uh, tops list because I love all three originals on this are my favorites. And one of the originals is one of their most famous songs ever. Yeah, well, that we're talking about She Loves You and that's a great, yeah, that song I still like. She Loves You is Tony approved. Let's rank <laughs> which Beatles hits Tony. God, you know what I can't stand is I want to hold your hand. Ditch it. Let's play Beatles, ditch it or pitch it. <laughs> Well, we just talk about what we like and what we don't like. And, uh, you know, I'm not like a trident dentist or anything. But. <laughs> Four to five Beatle fans say down with Beatles covers. <laughs> and I think that's the reason I love it so much. And prevailing wisdom at the time was when Meet the Beatles was assembled. Who wants to hear this British group nobody knows about doing covers of primarily black R&B songs? Right, And it turned out by the time the Beatles exploded so much and some of their covers that they were doing were huge parts of their live stage show, This there was huge demand for this album. And the covers on here are, I, I've always felt magnificent. And we'll go kind of track by track, but we start every episode with Tony's Album Facts. <laughs> 
Thank you. Thank you, TJ. Let's get serious like, here. Well, uh, this is going to be one of the one <laughs> week you're not going to have it, and I'm going to set you up like a real dick. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, uh, internet, internet. This album. All right, all right Tony, side to a yellow submarine, the George Martin Orchestra included who? You don't know that? <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, no, I, I don't know that, actually. Did those guys uh, get any credit? Alan Civil. <laughs> yeah, know. Alan were- Civil, French horn. All right, well, this album came out April 10th, 1964. I believe it replaced Meet the Beatles at number one. So it continued the Beatles, what do you want to call that, royalty run? Their ownership of the top. I I do the royalty run 5K every year. It's (laughs) such a good organization. I don't even know what it's for, but I get to take a selfie of myself in running pants, drinking a hot cocoa. Right, with a crappy crown on. and. (laughs) (laughs) It was number one for five weeks. Remember how when Meet the Beatles came out, it had 12 songs on it. That was the U.S. standard compared to the 14 songs on the British standard. Well, Dave Dexter cuts it down to 11 songs on this one. Less royalties to be paid, more money for capital. Yeah. And that sets the template then for, oh, okay, we can do 11 song albums now that clock in just under a half hour. Well, and that's why the original U.S. Sgt. Pepper ditched A Day in the Life and Sgt. Pepper's reprise and replaced them with uh, Learning How to Love You from the George Harrison album. <laughs> <laughs> However you hear the music, you hear the music. It doesn't matter. <laughs> it's all the same, man. Life's a mixtape. <laughs> I will say, yeah, there is a mixtape quality about this album. Yeah, it feels like a, a party record to me. That was actually my my big takeaway from listening to this was that it took me to like a basement in the 60s, you know, where you could dance and then you could make out and, uh, you know, and then get crazy, you know, while mom yeah. and dad were away. What is getting crazy in the early 60s? <laughs> like, how, how does how does one get, you know, crunked in 64? Well, probably maybe they break into the liquor cabinet and then it's like, oh, potted plants. Let's mess around with those. Not in a Weinstein way. I'm talking like <laughs> more of a wholesome potted plant experience. Hey, Joey, I got a lampshade in my head. Right. That kind of stuff. Well, it's like that Beach Boys party record, right? Where they're like... Uh, let's do this song. Okay. And they like maybe sing along and <laughs> off kilter tambourine. Ba 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 and pick up the tempo. The album's called Party. What no? What is it? Ba ba ba. You don't know how to sing ba ba ba. We should say that we are not baby boomers. We're Gen X. I did not grow up going to sock hops or whatever you did in the 60s. But I did watch like The Wonder Years, which was an 80s version of the 60s. You know, it's just like Stranger Things or whatever. When I see kids that are born in the year 2001 imitating what was my life as like a latchkey kid or whatever in the 80s. And it's like, okay, they kind of got it right. But, you know, it's a little bit imperfect. So I don't know. But that's what this record put me in the mind of was like a 60s basement party. Yeah, that's that's a really good way to put it. And it also helps justify the sound quality. And many Beatles fans and listeners of the show are aware that when the Beatles American albums were released, certainly the early ones, I think the most egregious example after this is on Beatles 65 with uh, She's a Woman and I Feel Fine. But they drenched these records in echo. Certainly the stereo versions were just dripping in echo because Capitol's engineers thought it would sound, quote unquote, more American. But what that really meant is they wanted the record to sound live. The Beatles were such a hot live act that they wanted this record in lieu of having a proper live album, which the Beatles never had on Capitol. The Hollywood Bowl tapes were released in 77, I think. Yeah. So... They, this was kind of meant to be all these fast uh, covers, a lot of which they did in their stage show, plus She Loves You, and the B-side of that I'll get you. They drenched it in Echo to make it kind of give it the feel of a live recording, which never made sense to me. I only read that kind of live thing, I think, in, in Bruce Spizer's book about the Capitol albums. But the Echo has been part of the existence of these songs. It's another one. I'm not going to go into a 20-minute rant, but I'll say quickly that from 1987, when the CDs came out, 
through the 04 CD reissue of this, those mixes just disappeared. So you had, uh, I mean, this album disappeared, those mixes disappeared, and when they were released on the 2014 box set, the version of the second album you can buy in stores today does not have the reverb. I think on a couple tracks it's added gently, but the decision was made to go with optimum sound quality versus the way American fans heard it, which is its own controversial episode. But if you go, uh, I don't think you can download this anywhere, but if you buy the CD from Amazon or Target or I'll never forget when these came out in 2014, the Walmart in Plymouth, Wisconsin, where <laughs> my wife and I vacation up at a lake up there, had all the American CDs in the racks in a Plymouth Walmart in 2014. And I think I cried in the Walmart and Carrie was like, <laughs> maybe this isn't going to work for us. And I'm like, you got to understand. It's so cool to see something new in a Walmart in 2014. Don't you understand my excitement? She didn't. A divorce lawyer was called too fucking expensive. So point being, you can, the CD is in print, but it does not sound like if you pick up a stereo copy of the vinyl at your local record store, which is high recommend you listen to it because while the sound quality is weird, it's part of the experience, Tony. It's true. I mean, it does have kind of a live feel. I will say with all that reverb and echo and stuff, if you know, they were doing like a, a midnight improv show to an empty house. Yes. Which we know nothing about. <laughs> Our minute improv shows were packed with derelicts and other creepy male improvisers. But other than that, which are one of the same derelicts and creepy male improvisers. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's just like an age. Uh-huh. You know, you hit an age and you go from <laughs> improviser to derelict. No, I don't know. But uh... just when you move to L.A., Tony, just when you move to L.A. Yeah, man. Another thing before we get into the actual music, I actually really like this album cover. This to me is like yeah. the quintessential 60s style. I mean, it almost looks like a Beach Boys album cover. And it's got what, how many pictures here? I did count them up. I think there's 12 pictures on each side. They're different pictures. It's fun. The photos are by a guy named Joe Cavello. The font is ad lib regular for all you font heads out there. <laughs> I, my favorite Happy Days character was Fontsy. <laughs> Hey, Helvetica Bold. That's Anthony's play, not Fonzie. Yeah. Avenir. <laughs> there it is. There it is. There it is. Hey, the hey. piano. Piano in a sling. We should say you are still slinged up. I am slinged up and ready to fight. Hey, what's going on? Try to get Fonzie to fight your battles for you? Hey, Frankie. You just make sure it's a fair fight. Well, what does it say here? Never before has show business seen and heard anything like them. And here they are, the world's most popular foursome, singing and playing their new collection of hits, the Beatles' second album. There's a little more cover trivia for you, Tony. If you look at the record itself on the beautiful Rainbow Capital label, it actually, underneath the name The Beatles, lists the individual Beatles' names for the first time. Oh, which had, oh, right. had not been done on, on Meet the Beatles, which is really cool. That's kind of, I think, the first time that had been done for any pop group. That might be another Bruce Spizer tidbit. And they lead with Paul McCartney. That's right. Yoko was so mad even in 64. <laughs> in 64, Yoko was already a 50-year-old artist in Japan. Right. Destroying uh, pianos with hammers and stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> My generation's Pete Townsend, if Pete Townsend were Bruce Hornsby. Did Pete Sounds ever destroy a piano? No, no. There was that other band, The Move, that would that they destroyed like a car on set. What was the reason? <laughs> Were they like protesting like, <laughs> buy American? What? No, the, first of all, they were British. <laughs> that's, the pro- that's the irony. <laughs> no, I think they were just trying to out-sensationalize The Who. So they kind of came, they did this after the, the Who's smashing guitars bit. And then many years later, uh, L.A. Clipper Blake Griffin dunked over a car, and we <laughs> call that a trilogy. <laughs> right. There's also a jumping the shark in there somewhere. Another happy day, right? <laughs> it's literally, that comes from happy days. He's ready to make the jump. There are no ballads on this record. Isn't that wild? Also, no beards. No ballads, <laughs> no beards, Light FM. What? <laughs> Before we get into the songs, the other thing about this album that everybody should be aware of, 
this is the Beatles' second album, and it's not the Beatles' second album. Because by this point, VJ had already released Introducing the Beatles, then came Meet the Beatles, and then Capitol released this. It's their third album. One of the reasons Capitol called it the Beatles' second album was to kind of give a bit of an FU to VJ and make that seem like it was one of those Beat Brothers, Tony Sheridan-type releases on VJ yeah. and quote-unquote unofficial because it wasn't on Capitol. Capital would get those masters the following year and release the early Beatles, of course. But it's the Beatles' second album, but it's not. Introducing the Beatles and VJ sold a ton of copies in 64. Yeah, this is Capital basically owning it. They did that coming up on the uh, when they released something new concurrent with uh, the United Artists Hard Day's Night album when the Capital Press was all like, Beatles records sound better on Capital. Capital is the real home of the Beatles. Like, just basically telling you, like, <laughs> don't buy the United Artists one with the lame George Martin Orchestra songs on it. Right. So it, it's it's funny how possessive Capital became after being totally dismissive. She Loves You, which we'll get to, was a hit in England a year and a half before. Then it stiffed in the States and Capital passed on it. Now it's the centerpiece of this album a year later. It's wild. Well, do you want to start it? Because uh, I know you want to talk about how it opens with the George record, right? Sure. So this record, the second album, technically third, as we just said, but the second Capitol album begins with George Harrison doing Chuck Berry. Yeah. And what an incredible way to kick it off. What I love about George and the Beatles doing Chuck Berry is he infuses some Carl Perkins over it, which is what's so great because I feel like a lot of the Beatles covers of black music feel as influenced by their love for country as their love for R&B. Right. I'm, I'm not a guitar player, but Chuck Berry's opening, it's the same riff, sounds very Chuck Berry. This sounds very Beatles. So the Beatles kind of make this incredible song their own. It's not just a great George Harrison moment. He doesn't kick a, an official album off until a Revolver right. in 66. Right. So it's a big moment for him in America to kind of kick this off. And I think it's one of the reasons why, certainly in the States, People loved John, Paul, George, and Ringo equally. It shows the importance. How many bands had their third singer kick off their second album? It's a huge moment. This song was also looked at as being so good to satiate demand in Canada. This was released as a single on Capitol in Canada, and it did so well. It was imported into the U.S., World Over Beethoven, uh, the B-side was Please, Mr. Postman. Wow. It's just cool that like even in Canada, it was like, uh, Sweden, too. It was a single, but in Canada, it's like, wow, every song's so great. Fuck it. We can release it. Let's just do it. And they did. And it was a huge hit over there. That's cool, man. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I really like the guitar solo he does on it. It's cool. A lot of people give early George solos guff because he's not whatever. He hasn't found his uh, voice. He's still kind of doing a lot of Carl Perkins impressions, Chet Atkins impressions or whatever. But uh, I really like the, the solo he does on this. This is before like effects pedals and stuff. You know, it's cool. I think the solo is great, and I think this is one of the most confident early solos. I think they'd played the song live so many times that they had this song just totally under their belt. Like, think how few of these songs when they were being recorded for With the Beatles had to be rehearsed. None of these songs required a multiple takes. I think one of them, I think Long Tall Sally maybe, was like just done in one take because yeah. they were part of their stage show. So this song to me exudes early George Harrison guitar confidence. The solo's great. I cannot say enough, and you're a drummer. You can speak to this better than I can. 
Ringo's ability to swing while pushing the beat is unlike any rock drummer I've ever heard. Yeah, he's good. He's good, man. Uh, originally, this song was a Chuck Berry song, and it came out in 56. Yeah, it's a great one. And the Chuck Berry version is, I mean, obviously better. I'm not going to call this better than the Chuck Berry version, but it's got a, this has a great Beatles stamp on it, and yeah. it certainly holds its own. And then, uh, so next up is Thank You, Girl. This was like a B-side, right? This was the B-side to From Me To You, I believe. Yeah, that's what I think, too. In my notes, I put good placement for this. Cl- <laughs> I called it a clunker. <laughs> that's my obvious uh, opinion there. And what I mean by that is that uh, I think this song works better in this mix following Rollover Beethoven into the next cover of the Smokey Robinson cover. I, I just think it feels better than it does on Past Masters when it's up against their huge hits from Me to You and to She Loves You or whatever. <laughs> this song always sounds like so small in comparison to those mighty towers. It's a good point. I love this song. The stereo version of this, the harmonica drives me a little cuckoo. <laughs> yeah. Because this has the this has the more liberal use of harmonica, where Thea yeah. goes, thank you. Thank you, girl, for loving me the way that you do. Well, 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 well. You know, that's the... Yeah. And you can't escape it on this. I think I think Dexter took the stereo version and made it the mono version, too, for his second album. You are 100% right. So it was called a fold-down of the stereo for the mono version of this album. So, I mean, unless you had... I forget if it was on Rarities or not, but unless, uh, unless you had the single... If you only knew this song from second album, you only knew the drenched in echo over Bruce uh, Chanel, Bruce Chanel or Chanel. I have no idea. Uh, all the harmonica that, player. All, all that harmonica. Yeah, he had the hit with Hey Baby, the original Hey, Hey Baby. That was him. Right, which was the inspiration for that, or yeah. for John, yeah. Yeah, because didn't they play, they played shows together, right? That's what I seem to recall. I think so. Yeah. And I think a, a lot of the Beatles' early harmonica hits were influenced by that, and some they work better than others. I mean, you know Please Please Me is my favorite, and the harmonica, and that's just great. Versions without the harmonica there kind of just don't compare when they're kind of working through it or doing it live. But yeah, Thank You Girl, I prefer the one with less harmonica. But I've always loved this, and part of the reason, that bridge, the Thank you, girl, for loving me the way that you do. Those harmonies there, uh, the bridge keeps it so... The, the the bridge keeps it so interesting to me, and the, the kind of minor to major back and forth. I've always really loved the song, and maybe one of the reasons is this is one of the earliest Beatles records I ever had. I think because She Loves You was on it. Whether I, I think, I don't know if I bought this for myself, but it was given to me. So the song always felt like part and parcel of this album, not a stray track, like many stray tracks on the past masters, which came out, of course, in 88. And again, I don't hate this song. Let's play pick one, Wild Honey Pie or Thank You Girl. Oh, well, I'm a Wild Honey Pie guy I to know the you end. Are. <laughs> that song's have. fun. <laughs> it is fun, but it's fun as part of the White Album. There's so much White Album that is great because it's on the White Album. There's a lot of White Album that's like, no, I don't need to hear this on a separate, uh, like a mix or playlist. Hmm. Hmm. Beg to differ. But that's the age-old <laughs> argument. It's the Beatles. It's a bloody white album. Shut up. But that's the age-old argument. Like, what if you could make the white album one EP? What songs do you include? <laughs> one EP? Okay, yeah. four songs. What if you could make the white album one song? <laughs> <laughs> Then it goes into You Really Got a Hold on Me. Uh, that's George Martin on the piano. 
It is. It's George Martin playing great piano. He plays a bunch of songs on this record. And once the album's done, let's assess George Martin's role in this. For me, it firmly solidified, yeah, he's the fifth Beatle. I mean, he's integral to some of these tracks. But this is a great Smokey Robinson tune. I think I referred to it a week or two ago as a Sam Cooke song. It is indeed Smokey. What are your thoughts on this cover? Uh, yeah, I've always liked it. I, I don't not like it. Um, <laughs> I don't not like it. <laughs> Yeah, it's good. It's good. It, you know, here's what it does. It reminds me I, when I was a freshman in high school, I was in line at lunch to get the uh, milk. It was a separate line, right? And I remember seeing this kid who looked kind of like um, Dwayne from A Different World. Was that his name? Wasn't it Dwayne? Dwayne Wayne. Dwayne yeah. Wayne? Yeah, yeah. He had glasses. He was African-American. And he was singing this song with all his heart to this girl who was in line. And she was kind of cracking up about it. And uh, yeah, and I knew the song, but I, you know, I was more familiar with the Beatles version or whatever. And anyway, I think it's a great song. I loved that 30 years later that this malt shop 60s moment could happen in the late 80s. It's a nice story. But if I saw Dwayne singing romantically to a high school girl, I would cancel his ass so <laughs> He'd never work. I would dox him. I would threaten his family. I'm a patriot. I would threaten his family. <laughs> to be clear, uh, they were they were the same age. It wasn't an old. It wasn't like a 30 year old guy playing a teenager, like in a different world. It was an actual teenager. It's a different world. Ooh, and where you come from? The city. I should say I do a comedy bit with my partner, Linda. We open up with this song, you know, da, 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 da. And the first line is, I don't like you. And then the song ends. <laughs> it's a great bit. It's a fun bit. I always like that. Yeah. So th this is, it's a great Smokey Robinson song. It is a great John Lennon vocal. It has the passion. He, uh, he does money later in, in the record. He sings a song so passionately. It's. It's maybe one of Smokey's best songs, and I think the Beatles certainly do it justice. And originally it was done by Smokey Robinson, and the Miracles came out in 1962. A really recent cover, actually. It's like covering a song from the previous year, really. Do bands cover each other as much nowadays? I'm not in tune enough to like new music. I mean, I know Ryan Adams did that the entirety of that Taylor Swift album a couple of years ago. I don't know why I know that. I, I liked Ryan Adams before I found out he was kind of a, a shitbag. <laughs> Honestly, man, I, I don't even know who that is. Like, I've heard of Brian Adams. I know the name Ryan Adams, but to me, oh, I'm just those like... those were the best days of my life, Tony. <laughs> right? You had your six string... I got my first new six string, <laughs> bought it at the five and dime, <laughs> played it till my fingers were. Yeah. Was the summer? <laughs> no, thank you. Standing on your mama's porch, I really want to meet your mama. <laughs> oh, yeah. Can I meet your mom? What's Brian Adam singing about my mother? Get off my porch. <laughs> Get off my yard. <laughs> oh hey, my Brian lord Adams, get off my lawn <laughs> no thank you girl well another song they covered from 1962 was by the donnays devil in his heart of course changed to devil in her heart yeah now this is one of those covers that i that i truly like is what i'm trying to say you know it's not like oh that's pretty good for, you know i really like this song and this has George and Paul kind of harmonizing, but George taking lead. Yeah. Which is really cool. And uh, we talk a lot in the show about the Beatles' taste. This was not a hit. This song by the Donnays, I don't even think cracked the top 100. It was pretty obscure. I don't even know. You know, The Beatles, Liverpool was a seaport town. And what everyone always says is they always got the best black American music because sailors would come to the States and buy these records and bring them back to England to seaport towns where artists would study because you didn't have all the records. So you learn the B-side, you learn the obscure stuff. So it's so yeah. cool that this obscure black American girl group song 
made its way to England and became a, a great George Harrison track. I've heard the Donnays version, and it's really cool. The Beatles version's great, too. It's a little brighter. It's a little more confident. I, I dig it. Yeah, the original version has this funny kind of like slapback reverb on the drums and stuff. It's it's pretty interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I really like that they covered like girl group songs. Because to me, that's like, oh, like what if, you know, Daughtry covered Beyonce? Dude, if Daughtry covered Beyonce? What if Beyonce just covered Daughtry? <laughs> covered him in polythene. <laughs> polythene Chris? I forget. I don't know. I did watch that American Idol, that whatever season that was. That was the best season. Those are the best days of my life. <laughs> you know what else, Tony? I don't mean to do this, and this is going to be out of the blue, and our listeners might be surprised, but let's just want you know, baby, you're all that I want, and it's out of down in my arms. I'm back on your mama's porch. Where's your mama? Your mama left the porch. <laughs> Brian Adams sings porch songs about your mom. That, that, that's what he's doing on Cameo. Porch songs. <laughs> I like porch songs a lot. <laughs> it's the original title of Bokua Blues was porch songs. <laughs> For your mother. I was there in Louisiana. <laughs> next, next show, I'll just, just be me playing Bokua Blues on a piano. Oh, Lord. All right. So, uh, yeah, next song up, another cover. You're getting a lot of covers for your money. Oh, boy. Mm. <laughs> Dad segue. But, yeah, money, 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 money. So this is a hit for Barrett Strong in 1959. It was the first hit for Motown. It's interesting because, yes, it was a hit, but it wasn't a hit like you would come to expect from Motown in later years. A little more rough-edged, you know, when you kind of yeah. think about early Stevie and early Marvin Gaye. Uh, early temptation everything was a little more polished this kind of has more of a, a real like bluesy r&b yeah. feel to it this is one i went back and compared it to the deca audition with uh pete best it is such a testament to ringo's drumming that ringo keeps how do i describe it it's almost dirty he just ringo's just kind of laying it down his swing and his swagger in this song it's badass the way Ringo's drums drive this. That's something that Pete Best could never do. This is Pete Best technically fine, and he kept the beat, but what Ringo's doing actually gives the song its swing. And also, I got to say, George Martin on piano, he was a classical and comedy guy, and he's playing believable R&B piano licks. Yeah, it's strange that he can tap into that soul. He was a musical chameleon. It's why there are a lot of guys who have that kind of posh, educated music producer thing, especially in that era, who would have looked down at the Beatles. It's one of the reasons why Decca turning them down turned out to be one of the greatest gifts to their career, because if they'd signed with Decca, 
they would never have paired up with George Martin. No, no. And they would have ended up doing, uh, what was that song that they ended up giving to Jerry and the Pacemakers? How, How do, do you do? How do you do what you do to me? <laughs> I wish that, which they sing so, un- it's the most unenthusiastic sounding early Beatles. Because John, well, they hated you it. Didn't hear they want no yeah. part of it. They hated yeah, it. Yeah, they were like, we can't show our faces in Liverpool if we record this song. And in the anthology, I love what when they cut from they because they kind of play the Beatles almost. It sounds Beatles for sale lethargic. They're kind of going, "How do you do what you do to me?" <laughs> and they go to Jerry and the Pacemaker was going, "How do you do what you do to yeah. me?" It's sixties pop, you know. Which, yeah, which it belonged in their hands. Yeah, you know? fairy cross the Mersey and all. And it should be noted when you were talking about Ringo and what he brought, that swagger that he brought to the group. If you recall, like when they met him in Germany and stuff, they were kind of afraid of him. He had this like reputation for being like rough and tumble or something, which is so funny because he became kind of the most, I don't know, how would you describe it? The most kind of, well, he was kind of like the comic. Docile? Docile. Yeah, maybe that's the word. Yeah. Yeah. He became this kind of hangdog kind of spirit in the band. But before, when he was with Rory Sturm and the Hurricanes and stuff, and he didn't he have like a mustache or I don't know, he had like a beard and stuff. That's what it was. He had like facial hair and he looked like, you know, don't get on his wrong side. It's right. You know, the rumor that it was Ringo who killed Stu Sutcliffe. <laughs> <laughs> Should we not be spreading these lines? There was a fight. Ringo kicks Stu Sutcliffe's ass. Yeah. Ingrid's the only one who saw it. And Yoko was celebrating her 60th birthday, nailing an apple to somebody's face. Like, okay. <laughs> Beatles history. <laughs> yeah. And Bernard Purdy took over that night and then was the secret Beatle. He still plays drums on all those uh, McCartney records. <laughs> so was that clip from the Steely Dan documentary? Roberta Flack, Donnie Hathaway, Frank Sinatra, where just Bernard <laughs> Purdy going over the list of people he played for. Seals and Crofts, Neil Diamond. <laughs> Count Basie, the Andrews sisters. <laughs> right? like, Hey, uh, Prudy, you shouldn't be bragging about playing drums on a Seals and Crofts record. <laughs> Aretha Franklin. Nina Simone. Roberta Flack, Donnie Hathaway. James Brown. Lloyd Price. Ray Charles. Frank Sinatra. Heinz, Heinz, and Ford. Barry Manilow. Dionne Warwick. The Animals. The Monkeys. The Beatles. B.B. King. Bobby Blue. Well, then we finally get another Beatle original, one of my favorites, uh, to close off side one. You can't do that. I think this is a great way to close this record. It's a sneak preview on a on a Capitol album. This was released on an album in the States before, because it's on the Hard Day's Night soundtrack in um, the UK. Right. And You Can't Do That was also the single for Can't Buy Me Love, which of course is not on the American version of the Beatles' second album. But it wound up on an LP here, I think, before anywhere else in the world. And what a great song. You almost forget there's so many great early songs. This may be John's best attempt at trying to write a Motown song. Yeah. it's It's got that kind of Wilson Pickett type of feel. Maybe some of totally. that's the cowbell. Mm-hmm. That riff, I think George Harrison wrote that. The opening riff of this. Yeah, that's cool. Which is just such an earworm. I mean, I think it's just three notes, right? That riff. Yeah, it's just the G and the N. Right, right. The I mean, yeah, man. It's it's when people are critical of the Beatles, which we all know, people who are critical, they dismiss the Beatles as being simple. And I, with all due respect, I I think that. If you can't understand that the Beatles did simple better than anybody's ever done simple because they found a way to make simple interesting and often difficult, that it's not a criticism of the Beatles to say what they did was simple. What they did was not simple. It was accessible, but they took simple ideas and made them glorious and complex and beautiful. And it's hard to be that brilliant and communicate that with the masses in a way where everybody buys in. That's part of the mythology of them is as their career went on, they took all these difficult, weird, disparate ideas. People stayed with me, except for the fucks who were like, I'm going to burn a Beatles record because they didn't love Jesus no more. I'm going to burn it and rebuy it and burn that one and rebuy it to show them. Yeah, they're not the brightest. <laughs> no, but, but, but other than that, I mean, that's, uh, you know, we do the show, Tony, because we love this band. 
part of the reason I've always loved them so much is the sweep of the story. It's so mythical. And the fact that they were never, they never had like a, well, there was those three years where people just stopped loving the Beatles. No, for the, the years they were together, they were constantly on top. It humbles me. It amazes me. Before I move on, this is a song where we talked about the echo on the album. I think it is best served. This one, you talk about the basement feel, the original stereo of this, Seek It Out from second album, because it absolutely sounds like they're in a meat locker. Like, it sounds like it could be <laughs> a murder scene, like in Fargo. I mean, it's got... It's 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 almost dark and ominous and joyous at the same time. So I feel like and this is the way this song played in my head for 15 years. This weird echoey second album one's the way to hear this, especially if you're macabre, spelled macabre. Right, Paul Macabre. Uh, <laughs> as Paul seen- Macabre, Gary <laughs> Joplish. <laughs> so in other words, put on the butcher cover yesterday and today, but listen to <laughs> you can't do that and. There's your world right there. Uh-huh. Well, you flip that record over and you get, uh, this is, I think, my favorite Beatles cover. And I know I've been talking about my favorites and least favorites and who cares what I think, but I'm just talking. That's what I do. I love this song. Long Tall Sally. It's a load blower. <laughs> load blowers. Rock block. Take your dick out and listen. Oh, God. Oh, boy. FM 107. Sacramento's not fucking around anymore. I like that that's the Sacramento station. <laughs> Guys, nobody's listening. The FC's not going to do anything. Hey, Sacramento, suck a dick and run. <laughs> <laughs> Masks are for pussies. Sacramento rocks. All Ted Nugent. <laughs> All Nugent. All Hannity Metallica mashups. Next. KFU. Fuck you. <laughs> Driving home from the Kings game? No, you're not, because a liberal governor won't let you go there. Kill him. Sacramento radio. Well, originally this song uh, was done by Little Richard, came out in 1956. This is like one of those early rock and roll songs. Long Tall Sally, parentheses, The Thing. Mm, I didn't know that. Yeah, there's a cool story. I think it was after Tutti Frutti. A fan or something wrote him a letter saying like, can you write a song for my aunt Sally or whatever it was, but he like kind of commissioned it for this. He, he figured out the rhythm and the point was to sing this song as fast as he could. That's kind of like a generic, weird, almost rock history, but that's what I know about that song from memory. I'm sorry I didn't write all that down. There's no way to research anything these days. I mean, that's part of the problem with facts is, you know, you got to go to the library and who's got time. But but yeah, I mean, this, this Tony, to your point, this is, I think, one of the greatest Beatles covers. This song holds so much weight in the Beatles catalog because... It closed out their live performance career. This is the last song they ever did live. I'm not including the Let It Be Rooftop, of course, but their live tour, Candlestick Park in 66. This was the last song they played. They were actually doing I'm Down as their closer for about a year. I'm Down kind of replaced Long Tall Sally because the Beatles, they wrote I'm Down. It's uh, Paul McCartney's most similar sounding song to uh, Long Tall Sally, which I almost called Lay Down Sally. But this is one that because it's the last song they ever did live and they did it so often, they nailed this in one take. And another quality of the song, George Martin is rocking out playing those... 16th notes on the piano yeah man and he's never like in rock and roll music he shows off in a cool way with a bunch of glissandos and all that stuff in rock and roll music which we get to come yeah in this one he just sticks to those 16th notes and it's great because he's driving it and he's rocking out but he's not showing off and again it's such a perfect think about what the piano does in this song it helps make it it definitely helps drive it i mean Let's not forget Paul. I mean, Paul's the star of this one. Of course. That vocal may be his best on record. And it has, I I think we've mentioned this in previous podcasts, but 
it's one of my favorite guitar solos that starts off with a weird mistake that crazy harmonic high note that begins the solo i just love it Ringo's drumming is out of sight. It's the closest he ever got to that kind of Keith Moon, like, hit everything <laughs> stuff. Yeah, and that last chorus, he's just going nuts on the toms. Yeah. Yeah, this is one of those ones that's really fun to watch if you ever get to see them. I think uh, Anthology, the DVDs, you can see a live performance from Mania years before they got burnt out and just started playing everything in, like, halftime fast. Ringo was still playing quarter notes and eighth notes and things like that. (laughs) One of the things that made me the saddest is the lethargic If I Needed Someone from Budokan has always made me sad because I love that song. I do too, but there's something uh, there's something really fun about that version. I used to actually cue that up on that documentary, The Complete Beatles. Yeah, okay, yeah. Because they only give you like a verse or something. But uh-huh. I loved I loved the quality of that. There was something that was really kind of just hazy and druggy about it to me that appealed to me. This is great. And again, one of the great things about this is Paul McCartney would not exist without Little Richard slash Richard Penniman. Yeah. And uh, this um this this song inspired I'm Down, which is one of the great kind of minor songs in the Beatles canon. And for that alone, it's got a worthwhile place. And it's also the George Martin pot boiler to open side two, which just opens it with such a bang. Yeah, it's really hard to follow it. This was one of those songs that the U.S. got to hear before Great Britain because uh, they put it on the Long Tall Sally EP. But uh, EPs weren't a thing in the U.S., so Dave Dexter's got more dollar signs in his eyes and uh, threw it on here. And also, isn't there the Canadian album was called Long Tall Sally because they couldn't call second album second album, I believe, because it was technically the fourth album or something like that. Well, in Canada, two albums preceded this. I believe Twist and Shout and then Beatlemania with the Beatles were both capital of Canada records. So Got it. So Twist and Shout was like a weird Canadian hybrid. It's my favorite song by the band, by the way. Canadian hybrid, <laughs> gypsy tailwind. <laughs> oh, is that's Acadian Driftwood. Hey, LeVon Helm fans, contact me here and we'll geek out about the band. I do love Last Waltz. That's a great documentary. That Dr. John doing Such a Night is some of my favorite. I mean, I, I'm not even going to play it now because I cannot do Dr. John justice, but I can do Dr. Doctor Justice, the Thompson Twin song. <laughs> doctor, doctor, can't you feel me burning, burning? That's, dude, Terry Hammer totally going to play the Thompson Twins cover of uh, of uh, Love You Too. <laughs> I definitely think you did that song justice. We only get five songs on side two, and the second one is I Call Your Name. This one also made its debut on this record before it appeared in the UK. Right, right. Another one of these. Yeah. I think in the context of this album, this song works really well right here after Long Tell Sally. Yeah, it's a great song that is always, I've always loved it because it's got one of the weirdest middle eights. The solo kind of breaks the tempo and goes a bit, not the tempo, it breaks the rhythm and feel and goes into almost like a, a ska solo. Is it fair to call that ska? I never weep at night. I call your name. Ow. Ow. 
yeah, it drives. It does that weird shuffle drive. It is cool. Yeah, cool. It's like the song like contracts or something like that. And John's scream to get into it is exciting. Yeah, that scream is great. It's so good. They're playing with different textures and colors and that cowbell again, much that we heard on You Can't Do That. We talk about this so much, but my God, the influence of black music and Beatles music is inexorable. They're they're just so directly tied together. And hearing the Beatles honor it with that level of respect and authenticity is really exciting stuff. Yeah. Yeah, this is one of my favorites, definitely from 64. And for those purists out there, the mono version has a different guitar part. And also the cowbell comes in at a different time. So this is one where stereo and mono differ fairly significantly. Yeah. Uh, then we go into uh, another cover. This is a Marvelettes tune from 61. It was the first number one for Motown. Uh, Please, Mr. Postman. What a great song. The Marvelettes version is obviously the superior version. But this is another one where the Beatles do it so much justice. It's another note I have where just Ringo, he just swings and grooves it. It doesn't feel like, and again, Tony, you're the drummer. You can probably couch this in words I can't, but so much early 60s pop drumming felt studied and clean. Ringo just never quite, like, what was his famous comment when Jeff Lynn wanted him to use a click track for free as a bird? He goes, I don't need a click track, Jeff. I am the fucking click track. Is what he told uh, Jeff Lynn. Yeah. Because I also read George and Giles Martin when they were mixing love were struggling because in different parts of the same Beatles song, Ringo's tempos were varying slightly, dragging or pushing, dragging or pushing. And it just worked the way he and Paul were so locked in. I feel like this cover is wonderful. That Marvelettes version, by the way, you know who's playing drums on that? No. Marvin Gaye plays drums on that Marvelettes original, Please, Mr. Postman. I just learned wow. that. Wow. Yeah. I, I, that is some that's some heavy trivia. Isn't that that's great. great. Yeah. And then uh, next up is I'll Get You. Wait a minute. We're, we're not moving on from that without you giving your thoughts on the Carpenters cover. <laughs> I'm pleased, Mr. Postman. <laughs> You're a Carpenters guy. I actually, I actually researched. I didn't know they covered it. And I listened to a couple seconds and I was like, oh, now I see their sadness. Then we're at our penultimate song, if you have the LP. And that is I'll Get You. Now, this is where (laughs) you may disagree with me, TJ. This is uh, my notes. I wrote, ah, this party just got lame. Boo. (laughs) Hard disagree. Yeah, I figured. I figured. I don't know. But coming after, please, Mr. Postman, long, tall Sally, I call your name then. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) They're not like dying. They're just they're just being the cute ones. Oh yeah, that's Paul. That's an early precursor to Maxwell's Silver Hammers. <laughs> I think that's what this is for me. You're right. I think this is exactly this is the prequel to Maxwell's Silver Hammer for me. This is one where I love the bridge. Well, there's gonna be a time the harmonies, the minor to major, and I'm gonna change your mind. So you might as well resign. That yes, that part to me makes the song so great. I don't love the oh yeah intro. It's another Bruce Chanel harmonica-influenced song. Yeah. But this was the B-side to She Loves You. Right. She Loves You follows and closes out the album. But yeah, I've always loved I'll Get You. Yes, I will. I'll get you in the end. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, there's gonna be a time when I'm gonna change your mind. Many, many, many times before It's 
trivia here he pulled the song out and did it live on his 05 tour right which is his most adventurous set list since um he probably came back in 89 that tour had too many people she came in through the bathroom window wow um please please me i mean he did songs that he had just not done ever or in ages and uh that he hasn't done since so it's notable that of all the songs in the beatles canon he tried it out i'll get you you're right that's an interesting one to pick. Yeah. <laughs> at, the, t- at the time, he'd still never done Uncle Albert Admiral Halsey. Right. He'd never done No More Lonely Nights, and he pulls out uh, I'll Get You. But it was a cool moment. To me, that's that's the same take as a Temporary Secretary live. Yeah. Like, out of all the songs. Okay. <laughs> Why? Why this? My God, you've never done Take It Away live. Why are you doing Temporary Secretary? It's 2015. What's wrong with you? Temporaire. He knows it's a meme. He's meme conscious. Uh, well, it closes with one of their greatest songs to date. <laughs> she loves you. I don't know. In my notes, I wrote, this is what we've been waiting for. I, I think, oh, yeah, that was my mindset of the uh, the record buyer of 1964. You know, you buy the record for the hit and they, they give it to you at the very end. And it's the first song mentioned on the cover, along with Rollover Beethoven, but She Loves You. It says featuring She Loves You. Everyone knows She Loves You. It is still one of their, I think after Hey Jude, their second biggest selling single in the UK of all time. When it was originally released in the States at the end of 63, it tanked. It was on the Swan label. So funny. Because Capital said, said, no, thank you. And then right after Beatlemania hit, Swan reissued it. Swan did not have rights to put this on an LP. So Capital got She Loves You and I'll Get You, which was She Loves You's B-side. And it when reissued in 64, She Loves You was number one for weeks and is still one of their most enduring and popular songs. The version on the second album, like many others, Tony, it's fake stereo, as is I'll Get You. They were never recorded or mixed in stereo. So the st- quote-unquote original stereo second album is that duophonic fake stereo. But the way the drums thunder in in stereo, it's... Again, it's cavernous, it's reverby, and is it good? No, but it's a great way to hear the song the way Americans heard it for 23 years. Now, I, I was thinking, like, how many kids, when they bought this record, how many of them put this song on first? You know what I mean? Yeah. I wonder what album etiquette was in the early days of rock albums. Like, did you just, was it just assume like, no, Johnny, you put it on at the beginning and let it play all the way to the end and don't fall asleep or you'll break the needle. Right. Well, what, what would you have done? Let's say you were a teenager. Do you think, would you have listened to the album proper and it respected the album or would you go right to the hit? Because that's the song you wanted to hear first. It's a great question. I think if I'm an American teenager in the 60s, stay away from me. <laughs> uh, I, I, I would have um, had the 45 already. So I would have let the album play all the way through and I would have worn out the 45. And then sold it to Reckless, expecting, like, <laughs> I got an original, she loves you. What do you mean I don't get $16? Like, there's 20 million of these. Here's 50 cents. Go away. <laughs> this is an original Beatles record. Yeah, everybody had one. How come Reckless won't buy back my baseball cards? <laughs> I've got a Dwight Gooden 94 tops and OPG. <laughs> An original Doc Gooden. It's got the cocaine on the card. How come they ain't buying it? I got a laser disc of Star Wars 2. How come no one's buying it? That's the one where Lucas went back and he put Ewoks in every scene. 
<laughs> How come Reckless won't buy it? I was expecting my retirement off this 45 if I want to hold your hand. Everybody had one. It was mandatory. It was like, the I want to hold your hand was like the, the 64 version of U2 making everybody have their uh, album on iTunes. Right. And then now, TJ, you have the 8-track of this record, right? The Beatles' second album. I do. Well, it has an extra track on it, right? Right. The 8-track in this otherwise crazy rock and roll album with a lot of covers, the 8-track ends with And I Love Her. Which then breaks kind of the spell of no ballads. That's right. All of a sudden, and the one ballad tacked to the end, which is which is such a strange thing. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I mean, it's who knows how many people listen. Like, I get this is in mint condition. We never listened to it, but I've had it for ages, probably since the '80s. And I don't know if the A track was released at the same time as the record. Maybe the A track came out after a hard day's night. This is just kind of tacked on. So I'm not going to say this was like an American preview of "And I Love Her." Wait, did. When did 8-tracks come out? Like, I, I seem to think of them as like a late 60s, maybe early 70s phenomenon. Well, I think they were mid-60s. I think 65 or 66, because they started marketing them for use in cars, so people could have music in their cars, was the original right. use of 8-track tapes. Yeah. Um, and there's something, kids, before we wrap this thing up, Tony, what, what kids today don't remember, unless I'm over-remembering this, and Casey, our producer, who is 17, Casey, this might seem weird to you, but Tony and I remember a time when you would drive down 94, any interstate or highway in the country, and there were just reams of cassette tape everywhere because people would have tapes in their cars that would break <laughs> and then litter with the actual cassette. And you'd see on the side of the road. Am I, am I hallucinating, Tony? Do you, maybe I'm over-remembering, but I just remember streams of cassette tape everywhere. Yeah, that's right. Back when like littering was like something people did. <laughs> You know, it was just like, oh, oh, well, you know, throw it out the window. Who cares? That was Nancy Reagan's big campaign. Just say yes to littering. <laughs> I don't remember that as much, but I definitely remember, yeah, people throwing things out the windows of their cars. The one thing I never understood was that phenomenon in the 90s when people would hang CDs from their rearview mirror, like air fresheners, like on a string, there'd be like a CD. And if the sun hits it, like you're going to get blinded by by this rainbow prism <laughs> was it to troll other drivers i don't know i just like it was like if you didn't have a dream catcher then you had like a cd dangling from you if you were one of those people <laughs> that hung things from your rearview mirror <laughs> yeah i guess uh <laughs> if you're driving around with a 90 cd you got to be careful because you don't want to go third eye blind hey hey <laughs> so yeah uh before we ditch she loves you entirely one of my favorite little She Loves You stories, the chord it ends on, it's called a major six, that harmony. It's kind of borrowed from Glenn Miller. And George Martin heard it and said, that's corny. We should not end the song this way. And the Beatles said, it's not corny, it's cool as hell. And it became one of the most indelible parts of the Beatles' music. With a love like that, you know you should be And that early for the Beatles to be able to look at George Martin and say, thank you for the note, but we're going with what we want to go with. Yeah, it's cool. In a way that was confident and correct and didn't isolate George Martin or cause some power struggle. The way they all worked together yeah. is stunning. It's the five people together. The Beatles plus George Martin were the right people at the right time. And it's what this album's another reminder that, yeah, George Martin is the fifth beetle yeah i suppose yeah to me it always kind of changes but i know what you mean who else could have taken john's ideas for strawberry fields and made them sound the way john wonder i'm the walrus i mean he was there as much as you think of george martin as a paul guy because of paul's solo years george martin helped every beetle look at it look at his arrangement for something the George Martin song, the worst Beatles ballad george martin wasn't allowed to orchestrate and of course that she's leaving home <laughs> Perhaps, yeah. But then you could also say, like, well, if Mal Evans hadn't brought them tea, you know, they would have been in a shitty mood and couldn't have done take seven of Strawberry Fields or whatever. Mal Evans is the fifth Beatle. Fair, but Mal loses points for randomly banging on a <laughs> on a anvil during Maxwell's Silver Hammer. Like something's wrong with him. I still think that's an Andrew Lug Oldham editing snafu. Ah. 
painted to make Mal Evans look like a, a doom cough. It's one of the great conspiracies. That's your Paul is dead, <laughs> yeah. is the Let It Be Conspiracy. Well, that's uh, this is a great album. I love that we're delving into the Capitol albums because all of them have their glories. And as much as they were derided and kind of thrown to the bins of history for many years, starting when the CDs come out in 87, it's great to revisit them. And I think any serious or even casual Beatle fan should know and own these Beatles albums in their blood because it's how the Beatles' biggest market in the world learned to meet the Beatles up to Sgt. Pepper, for better or for worse. You can't change that part of history. It's cool, yeah. Again, you can't really stream it, so maybe we can make a playlist for you, and uh, yeah, we'll put that in the notes. Throw it in GarageBand and increase the echo by 200%. (laughs) Well, next week, it's like St. Valentine's Day, parentheses, S-I-C. <laughs> I love saying St. Valentine's Day. That's I think that's stupid and funny. <laughs> it's both. <laughs> so maybe we'll, we'll talk about some Beatles uh, love songs, maybe, huh? Yeah, and not the album love songs. I think we're going to get into some of our favorite Beatles love songs. Sounds good. Yeah, and possibly just spend 40 minutes breaking down the McCartney instrumental Valentine's Day. (laughs) Yeah, it's going to be one of those two things. All right, we'll see you later on K-Fuck You, Dick Rock. Take off your pants. Misogyny's back, Sacramento. Fuck off, snowflakes. Here's the nuge. Mixed with Tucker Carlson taking a cry shit. Next. Untitled Beatles podcast. Like and subscribe. 